welcome to Shelter Cove Online. We are so glad that you're joining us today for this sermon. We hope and pray that this message encourages you, that you learn something, that you enjoy it. But more than that, we just pray that God would move in your life that he would reveal some more of himself to you today. If you would like to respond to this message in any way, you can contact us at sheltercovelive.com. Have an amazing rest of your day. I am the uh, senior executive pastor here uh, at uh, Shelter Cove. Welcome all of you online and up in the loft and wherever you are. Glad that you have come to us. On this final uh, day of our nine-week series on the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, we're going to talk today about maybe one of the toughest of the nine. It's called self-control. Now, we all have issues with self-control in some degree. Humans have always had a historical battle with self-control. I had one yesterday. Uh, most of you know that I uh, fly a lot, two or three times a month. And uh, I was at the airport in Seattle and coming down here uh, to preach last night. And... Uh, there was this group of kids, maybe five, six years old, that were absolutely obnoxious. They were yelling at their parents. They didn't want to be there, et cetera, et cetera. I realized what I was preaching about on self-control, and I did everything I could not to go over there. Pardon me, ma'am. Let me take over. Okay, you two, out. You know, that kind of thing. And uh, the self-control thing, as the more and more I get older and I fly a lot, uh, airports are full of people that have no self-awareness. I, I was at Perko's this morning. Uh, uh, some guy talked to me and said, Hi, Pastor Edward, you talking today? Yeah, I am. So that was good. But the guy on the other side of the little divider turned his phone on full blast and listened to a YouTube video for seven whole minutes while I was having breakfast. Now, folks... I'm not the most patient person in the world, but I almost got up and threw that phone out the door. I mean, here, here's, here's my first uh, foray into making you mad this morning. Here's the deal. If you have a phone, there's these things called earbuds and you must use them, okay? Got that? Especially in public. All right. <clears throat> now that I got that off my chest. Hey, my personal story is full of self-control issues. My father uh, was an alcoholic. Uh, he wasn't the bum in the street type of alcoholic that you might see on TV. He was a multimillionaire, uh, bought and sold many radio stations in the Northwest. And he lost everything due to alcohol. Absolutely everything. Cost him his health, cost him his family, cost him his empire. Because alcohol, he had no self-control over at all. My mother... Uh, was a great mother, phenomenal mother. I mean, I had the best of childhoods uh, growing up in Centralia, Washington, as a single mom. She was divorced and married five times before I was 18. So I'd seen every kind of stepfather, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But she was terrific. But she was a lousy wife. She had this unself-controllable thing in relationship to jealousy. Very possessive person. Her husbands could not even talk or look at another woman before it became a massive fight all night long. In one case, never forget it, it involved a gun. So my point is, is that we all have self-control things. Some of you have self-control problems with anger. Fact is, the more and more I drive in 
California, the more angry I get. And the self-control in my little Audi A3 is harder and harder to control. But I'm sure you have no problems controlling your emotions, right? Anger is maybe the biggest problem that Americans have. Some of you have no control over food. I mean, I got to admit, chocolate is God's gift to mankind. I mean, how many of you guys love chocolate? Okay, here's the real question. How many of you like dark chocolate? We have counseling for you people. <laughs> dark chocolates from Satan. Anyway, the bottom line... <laughs> Uh, the bottom line is some of us have anger problems, food problems. Some of us are, and I think more and more, especially, man, I tell you, uh, growing up in 2022 cannot be easy because I think some of us have trouble with lust. I think lust has dominated, sexual issues have dominated everything. I, on the uh, plane yesterday, I started to watch a movie because I love dogs. Uh, and it was a DC comic dog, super dogs or superhero dogs or something. Cute. I thought, okay, I watched that thing. First scene is this Superman's dog talking to two other dogs. And he says, hey, I have my own bed uh, uh, with Superman, blah, blah, blah. But when Lois Lane comes over and spends the night, I have to go to the floor. This is a kid's movie. Why do they need to sexualize kids? It makes me mad. Two, two minutes later, that same dog is talking to two other dogs and the two dogs are saying, yeah, we go to the floor too when Lois, not the other Lois, a different Lois, uh, come over and they panned over to two women making out. I turned the movie off. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you self-control is foreign to the world because they have no concept of controlling their lusts or our lust. It's hard enough with Christ in your life, but I'm telling you now, self-control is so, so important. Merriam-Webster defines self-control as this. The ability to control oneself, in particular, one's emotions and desires or the expression of them in one's behavior, especially in difficult situations. Take a look at that. That control oneself in one's emotions. Folks, be careful with your emotions. Dobson said it back in the 80s. You can't trust them. He wrote a book, Emotions, Can You Trust Them? And if you read that book, you find out the answer is no. Emotions will drive us to do stupid, stupid things. So our text, I'm going to go through a text point by point. For those of you taking notes, you're going to love this because it's got all sorts of Greek in it. I got to explain it. Um, it's in Titus 2. So take your Bible, your phone, your tablet, whatever you have, and turn over to uh, Titus 2, 11 through 15. The ushers have Bibles if you'd prefer a, a physical one. And we're going to take a look at this and go verse by verse, word by word, concept by concept, and tear this thing down on self-control. Now, at Shelter Cove, we honor God's word whenever there's a text that someone is going through. In other words, I'm not going to be spreading all over the place too much. By standing and reading it together. So if you would, would you just go ahead and stand with your text, and I'll read from the screen for you so that we honor God's word. Four. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation 
for all people, training us to renounce, catch that, ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing and glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 14, it says this, I need verse 14. Next, there you go. Who gave himself for us to redeem, key word there, redeem, us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Thank you, appreciate that. So we have a text here and obviously it is centered around the concept of self-control. But before I can talk about that, I need to tell you a little bit about Titus. For you folks that love notes, here you go. Uh, in Titus, it's only three chapters, it's very, very small. There are 13 times where it mentions the word God. Esther is five times bigger, it doesn't mention God at all. So the concept here of God is a big deal to Titus mainly because there's polytheism everywhere because the setting is the island of Crete. I was just in Crete last month in Greece and it's a huge place, big. But the idea of God was a big deal to Titus, Paul telling Titus. Second thing is big in Titus is the word work or works. It's mentioned eight times in this three chapter book addressing the Cretans lackadaisical obedience. In other words, they, they profess to know him, but deny him by their works is what Paul says. It stresses the effect of the gospel on a believer, at least what should happen. Then it talks about faith six times, talking about the body of Christian beliefs. Paul makes the case that theology, good doctrine, changes people to behave in such a way that they have self-control. Another thing he mentions is savior, six times in the three chapters, uh, affirmation of Jesus' full deity. Now, in your Bible, take your Bible and turn over to Titus 1.8, because I need to give you a little bit of background again in Titus before we ever touch this critical uh, passage. Titus 1.8. Just want you to see the theme of Titus. Rather, he must be hospitable. This is talking about elders, leaders in the church. He must be hospitable, one who loves what is good. Key word there, you have your own Bible, you should underline that. Good, that's a key thing in Titus, doing good. Who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In other words, he's repeating the exact same thing he says in chapter two, in chapter one. He starts with it. One of the things you are told in seminary is anytime a book or a sentence repeats a concept, that means that's the most important part. So what's the most important part? Worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith. In verse three, he's, uh, uh, chapter two, turn over to chapter two, verse one. We'll start there. It says, you, however, talking about Titus, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Why? Because people can thrive on sound doctrine. It also tells you that there is bad doctrine, unsound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, catch the next word, self-controlled. 
There it is again. Self-controlled. Verse 3, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, their behavior, not to be slanders or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. There's that word again, good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled and pure. Self-controlled again. Verse 6 of chapter 2, similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Young women, young men, older women, leaders, self-control. So now you know a bit of the background. It's all about self-control. So we're going to look at two things. It's in your little note. If you got that little note card, it basically says these two things, okay? Number one, it says grace trains us. Grace trains us. Number two, redemption empowers us. Redemption empowers us. Okay, so the text, uh, verse 11, chapter two, grace trains us. We're gonna talk a little bit about that. It says specifically, for the grace of God appeared. What does that mean? Here's a theological word for you. It's called incarnation. Incarnation. It's basically the concept that Jesus comes out of heaven and becomes a man in front of men to teach them and to train them about what God wants in this world has appeared. That's exactly a, a, another uh, text would be John 1.14. And the word, talking about Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what it's talking about. So the Greek word here is epiphaneo. Uh, we get the word epiphany. It means that it carries the meaning of coming into the light or, or what, however you would like to say it, it, coming out of something and into light. And Jesus then bring salvation, the full plan of, of salvation to mankind from God's plan from the beginning. So this grace, first of all, brings salvation. And I'm here to tell you, I can, I can tell you story after story of story that when Jesus enters a person's life, there is a change that happens. Jesus can change people. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I can tell you now personally and in experience that Jesus can change people. The moral power of the incarnation is unreal. It is truly all about Jesus. When you turn your life, when you put your trust in him, when you stop living for yourself, when you stop allowing sin to control you completely, we always fight sin, we're never perfect. But when that happens, change happens. I have some good friends that are in the drug rehab world, but on East Coast and West. And I can tell you, the moral power of the incarnation, when Jesus is introduced to drug re rehabilitation, it works. When he's absent, it does not. Secular psychology, which I have no time for. Sorry. Tozer said to make half the audience mad. Well, there's my first half. So here's the deal. 6% success rate for secular drug rehab. When you talk about long-term change, 6.2% for secular on average drug rehab. When you put Jesus into the mix 
and you have Christian drug addiction rehab programs, that rate doesn't cause 6%, it's 65%. There's a, there's a place in Bakersfield called Teen Challenge and they have an 81% change rate. Mainly because they focus on Jesus and the change that happens. Jesus changes everything. When one trusts Jesus, then Isaiah's words mean all the more. Where Isaiah the great prophet said, cease to do evil, learn to do good. Because we are in a process and Jesus offers salvation. It appears according to this text and all people who are saved behave and act and are different from the inside out. I implore you, I implore you. Jesus matters and you can't just put him on a shelf. You know, folks, we are naturally bent toward evil. You know, you don't have to train a two-year-old to be bad. They already know how and airport two-year-olds clearly know how and, and mankind is not basically good like secular psychology says, we're basically evil. Romans 10, uh, Romans 3, 10, verse 12, it says this. It says, there is none righteous. In Greek, that means zero. There, I know, that's pretty. I went to seminary to learn that. Uh, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Keyword, all, including you, and you, and you, and me, all have turned aside. And aren't we easily distracted? You, 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 you ever see the movie Up? I love the dog in that movie. Squirrel? I mean, I love that. Because that is the human condition. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Become useless. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you something that you're not going to like, but here's the deal. I think there are churches that have become useless. They have traded Jesus' salvation, Jesus' absolute concentration on evangelism and sharing their faith for this idea that somehow we're just supposed to do good and be social change agents. Folks, I am here to say that when you focus on this, you automatically do that. When Jesus comes into your life, you automatically see people and you start wanting them to be better. And they've exchanged the power of Jesus for the task of being a do-gooder. And that's not the gospel. Psalm 36.1, there's no fear of God before their eyes. I think the United States is right there. There's no fear. 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness. He doesn't care. We have an automatic bent toward worldliness and ungodliness. I don't care if you're a Christian for 50 years or five minutes, you will still fight the sin nature within. You won't be perfect, but as far as I can tell, when Jesus is at the center of a person's life, things change. 
And he changes us and we now have the power given to us by the Spirit to say no to ungodly nonsense and proper perspective of our passion. And what is training? Verse says training. It's instruction, tutoring, schooling. And it takes time. In my younger years, I used to teach tennis, a tennis instructor. And I can just tell you, when my trainee would just listen to me, they got better. When they just wanted to do whatever they wanted, they didn't. I would rather have somebody who's never even picked up a racket than somebody who's already played for a while because they have bad habits already. My friends, we are to be trained by the Spirit. I believe in a Spirit-led life. So what is being self-controlled? It means to really listen and obey the Holy Spirit. But that means you got to get rid of some of the distractions, and there are a lot of them. And we get so, I don't know what the word is, ensconced in some of the stuff of life, of this world, that we fail to see the spiritual condition of the people around us. Consider a chart that I, uh, I have <laughs> shown several staff people to show that we're not perfect, but we are different. Now on this side, it's righteousness. Another word would be holiness. And you grow in holiness. It, you know, like we, we start um, saying no to a lot of ungodliness, start saying yes to whatever God wants. And you start becoming as more and more like Jesus as you can. As Paul said, mimic me as I mimic Jesus. We start trying to be more like Christ. And the bottom axis is time. Over time, it improves. Now, the average Christian comes to Christ here at the bottom, and they have a great deal of effect and impact. And then sooner or later, some temptation gets a hold of them, and bam, they have some sort of falling out with God, or they ignore God, or they give in to that temptation. Could be lust, could be adultery, could be lots of stuff. And then somehow God gets a hold of them either through somebody and they repent. And they say, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm an idiot. Which we all are at times. And then we start going up and up. And then there comes a time when Christians get, have been Christians for so long that they fail to grow. If you stop learning, you stop growing. And you plateau. And anybody that is coasting in the Christian life sooner or later goes downhill. And then something happens, some temptation, and bam, sometimes all the way down to the bottom. I've dealt with three different people this year, one in Seattle, two here, that had had their world crushed because they gave in to something that went all the way down here. And then God gets a hold of them. They get exposed. Somebody finds out. And then they start leaning back on Jesus. And they grow more and more. The average Christian life goes like this. That's what the average Christian life, including mine. You can plot the trend line. It's always going up towards Jesus. But boy, there are some sidetracks. But what worries me more is the person on the red line who comes to some service says, I'm a Christian. I'm, I want to be baptized. I'm going to work in the Christmas lights. 
And they start going up and being around church for about a year, six months. And then they, in their life, they go straight back down to the red line like they were before and nothing changes and they just live in ungodly passion. Folks, I'm not sure that that red line is saving faith. No. <laughs> I'm not sure. And that's one thing I never want to be unsure of. The word ungodliness in the text is the Greek word asebia, A-S-E-B-E-I-A, asebia, which means to have a lack of true reverence and devotion to God. Here's the question that day. When I read that, I say, can a person whose life is characterized by constant ungodliness truly be saved? Even though he says he's a Christian. There's a lot of easy believism, but my Bible says that is narrow is the route. Wide is the path of destruction. Matthew 7, uh, we did this in your name, Lord. We did that in your name, Lord. We did, uh, depart from me, I never knew you. I didn't really know you. Folks, that makes me nervous. When I was 27, three young fathers and I met in a realtor office. One of the guys was a realtor, another guy was a stockbroker, another guy was a cop. And we decided that we needed more because temptation was beating all four of us. And so we got together every week for two and a half years. We studied this little book. Dozens of people have asked me the name of the author in the last two services. I'm going to say it real slow. Jerry Bridges. Got it? Bridges, you know, like cars, bridge, river. Bridges, Jerry Bridges. It's called The Pursuit of Holiness. There's another one that goes with it called The Pursuit of Godliness. And we went painstakingly through this little book and it changed my life. Because all of a sudden, us four guys started focusing on what it meant to climb our chart higher and stronger without as many fallbacks. And on this front of this book, he quotes 1 Corinthians 9, 24, run in such a way as to get the prize. Paul says that we're in a race. And some of us, I could hardly tell you're in a race because you're not putting any effort into it at all. My Bible says we are to win the race for the prize kept before us. So this being a Christian thing isn't some sort of game. It's incredibly important. And when that text says this present age, it's talking about debauchery. You can look that up, debauchery of the day. And it looks just like 2022. Homosexuality, drunkenness, sexual encounters are everywhere. I was in uh, Ephesus last month and I saw the Temple of Diana. 10,000 prostitutes work there every day. Well, we have the internet. It's the same thing. Same in Corinth. I've been to Corinth. I've seen it. Uh, uh, Crete, it's where the book is centered. It, uh, it, 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 it's everywhere. And we have to be different. 
How are we different? Well, grace changes us. Four areas. First one is attitudes. Attitudes. Second one, it changes our appetites. Third one, it changes our ambition. Fourth one, it changes our actions, our attitudes. The bottom line is our fruit, peace, gentleness, goodness, that's an attitude. A bad attitude would be aggressive, arrogant, belligerent, callous, cynical, dishonest, hostile, indifferent. I hate that one. The bottom line is you and I have a different attitude because we've become a believer and Jesus changes us from the inside out. We have a different appetite. We start keeping our lust in line. There are normal appetites, there's abnormal appetites, there's good and bad, but the bottom line, we have appetites we have to get control of. You parents, some of you have an appetite of being popular with your kids. Here's a little advice, stop it. You're in no popularity contest with your children. You're there to manage his children the best way you know how. <clears throat> Ambition. We, when we are Christian, we align our lives, our priorities, and what we value. Fame, stuff, cash, that's all nonsense. What we want to do is glorify God. And in our actions, we show extraordinary kindness to other people. Grace, unmerited favor, trains us all to be different. In recap, we renounce our ungodliness. And by the way, the Greek word there means once and for all to renounce worldly passions, to live self-controlled lives, spirit-led, where the spirit teaches us what to do in any given moment, to live in an upright manner as compared to being deceitful, to be hopeful awaiting his return, that's verse 13, waiting for the second coming. Our posture when we're waiting is to have eager expectation. The Greek word there means to have a longing. I don't know about you, but man, I am ready for Jesus to be here. Sin is such a pain and affects all of us and we fight it all the time and then we see it around us and then it affects our kids, our grandkids. I have six grandsons and I worry about what kind of country they're gonna live in 20 years from now. It worries me, but you and I are to be hopeful for the second coming. So that's the main point. Grace trains us. Jesus trains us. Self-control is connected to a key understanding of that grace and its effect on us. Then our redemption empowers us with a zealous spirit to do good, good works. That's in verse 14 and 15, who gave himself up to redeem, redeem. That's a slavery term. It means to be bought out of slavery, a ransom. Mark 10, 45, he goes, take notes, where Jesus gives his life for many. The, the Greek word here is lutru, L-U-T-R-O-O. It means to refer to releasing someone held captive. Folks, sin before Jesus held us captive completely. Titus 3, 3 says we are slaves to sin. And when we 
have Jesus where we couldn't set ourselves free from our own stupidity and sin and slavery and addictions, Jesus becomes the ransom. He pays it for you and me so we can be free to serve him. You follow that? We who have the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, listen to the Spirit, are empowered to be controlled by the Spirit, impacting the world around us. That means you and I have a purpose. And only through the Spirit can you defeat demons in your life. Because we have a purpose. And that purpose is to glorify God with everything we have. You follow that? How do we follow God? It is to be zealous for good work. Zealous, what is that? It's, it's this idea where you're passionately supporting a person or cause or idea. I don't believe in a Christian who sits on the sideline. Webster says good works are things done to help poor people, sick people, etc. And the Bible says the world will know us by our love for one another. We are here to make a difference. If you don't think you're making a difference and you're in this church, then get out of your rut and join Shelter Cove with everything you have. Join the first step thing, join us in the family thing. For crying out loud, you can go out there to the new person thing and join in helping Christmas likes even this week. The reason why that's important is so that we together can gather strength together in order to reach this world, this dying, crazy, cold, nutty world. And then B, we're to declare the power of the gospel with authority. Exhortation, that means coming alongside. Rebuking, that means calling sin a sin. I believe in Christians being in the public square. I don't think we should retreat and let the world have the public space. And then to be confident in doing so, 2 Timothy 1.7. You've not been given a spirit of timidity, but one of power, love, and self-control. That's a direct quote. Power, love, and self-control. You and I are to be confident as we share. Okay, I'm, I, I'm done. So here's the deal. Conclusion. There are three types of people in this room. There are, the first pe group are people who are not Christians. You know it, God knows it. We're gonna have 30 seconds here at the end of this for you to consider saying, okay, I'm done with sin. I'm gonna repent. Lord, come into my life. I don't even know what that know, uh, feels like or knows what it's gonna be like, but I want you to take over. Second set of people are people who've been in the church for years, but they have plateaued a long time ago. And Christ is clearly not your Lord. You've been distracted. You've been involved in sin, secret sin that nobody in the planet knows. And it's time for you to stop it so that you can serve. Not so you can be happy. Self, <laughs> your self-image get better. What a nonsensical thing. Your job is to repent so that you can serve and that you can go back to your first love, which you lost a long time ago. And the third person is the person who's doing fine. They've had 
drops oh, and it embarrasses them. But it's time you consistently ask yourself about your purpose. And are there distractions currently that are even holding you back a little more? That lustful TikTok, that Facebook reel with all the uh, women dancing around crazy, uh, TV shows that are risque, maybe it's gossip where you're getting jolly with talking negatively about everybody, or maybe you've got a grudge and you're mad at someone for something and you just can't let it go, to quote Disney, you can't let it go. I'm reading a book right now called Forgive by Timothy Keller, K-E-L-L-E-R. It'll change your world if you've got grudges. Finally, three different people. Unbelievers, you need to believe. Christians have been just, you've been lackadaisical for a long time. You need to get out of that. And ones are doing just fine. Let's see what else you can do and where God will take you. A church can only get strong when the individual believers get strong. So we must ask ourselves, you gotta ask yourself in your heart, are you only a spectator? Or are you on the sidelines of following Christ rather than being actual players in the game? Because the world is disintegrating around you and you can see it every day. And God needs you to engage and make a difference. Close your eyes, bow your head, 30 seconds of just you and the Lord and the Spirit, whatever the Spirit tells you. So be it. But just 30 seconds re reflection and then we'll go. <clears throat> Father, I pause for a moment and just ask that you would watch over these people in this room, that Lord, wherever your spirit would convict May you have your way and help us to pay attention to the fruit of the spirit of self-control. We so apologize the times we screw up, but we're so thankful for grace that trains us back to the right path. We love you and ask for your forgiveness and your power to live better. In the name of Jesus, amen. Hey, thanks for putting up with me. God bless you. We will see you next week at the choir thing.